yeah, uh, that's what I'm doing over here. Uh, as I start, I wanted to uh, share with you something that happened with, uh, to me the other day. I thought it was kind of funny. I picked up my kids from school, and as we were getting out of the car, uh, my little five-year-old Nora sees uh, an Amazon truck drive by. Now, picture her. She's five. She's tiny, huge backpack. You know, she's standing. She looks at the Amazon truck go by. She sighs. She's like, oh, what is life without Amazon? Um, and <laughs> then... Turns around, goes into the house, and I'm like, what? Um, of course, this made me laugh because it was so poetic about something so silly and superficial. <laughs> and yet, I-, I realized at that moment that this is probably something she learned from us. I mean, it's not like she's ordering from Amazon, right? Uh, it's not her placing any orders, but I realized uh, that, you know, the way that life is around her really affects the way that she sees things. Now, it's silly. It's funny. But I'm embarrassed to say that uh, I love Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, and um, the, the problem is that I don't think it's that good for my soul. Um, and here's why. If you really think about it, the modern world we live in uh, really affects the way that we view life. And so one of the ways that that works out is that um, we live in a world now where things need to happen immediately. We do not like waiting. We hate waiting. We order things from Amazon. Now that we're talking about Amazon, and we're disappointed if it's not same-day delivery. God forbid it takes longer than two days because you're paying for Amazon Prime, right? And so, uh, but that's not the only way we see that play out. We see it in other ways. For example, young people today have a very short attention span because they have been tr- uh, trained by TikTok and other similar things uh, to get bored with anything that is longer than a few seconds. Uh, we really don't even know how to uh, think about questions, right? Has it ever happened to you? Like uh, back in the day, I think, if I ever wondered who the previous king of England was or whatever, I would have to go study or ask someone and have a conversation. Now you just Google it, right? We don't even know how to wonder anymore. We don't even have to think about things, ponder in things. We just Google them. Now there was a comedian that once said that we're so spoiled that everyone you pick up at the airport has just had the worst day of their lives, right? Because you know what? They had to wait 20 minutes on the runway, Uh, Never mind the fact that they just flew from the other side of the world in a matter of hours sitting down watching a movie, right? They're still going to complain because it took 20 minutes to get out of that plane. So the reality is that we have lost the art of waiting. We don't know how to wait. Uh, And then the virtue of patience is in short supply these days. And I see this not only out there, not only out there in the world, but I see it in my sinful heart. More than any generation in history, we do not like waiting. We don't know how to do it. The problem, though, is that in the life of the Christian, this is problematic. Because, you see, we serve a God that does things in his own timing, which is often radically different than our timing. We serve a God who is sovereign above all things, over all things, and who will do as he wills whenever he thinks it best. Our God cannot be rushed. He does things whenever he desires. And this can be really challenging to our flesh. Today, we will keep looking at the story of David. And we will see how after many years of waiting, finally, 
what God had promised David came to pass in his life. Today we will see how God, our sovereign God, is sovereign above all things and how his will always prevails. We will see how the life of David um, points to the greater king that was to come, being that Jesus Christ. We will see that Jesus Christ is a merciful king, a merciful and patient king. We will see how he is a king that defeats our enemies on our behalf, a king who is exalted above the nations. And lastly, we will see how he is the only perfect and lasting king. With that said, would you read with me the first five verses of chapter 5? So would you stand with me for the reading of the word of God? 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 say this. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought, um, and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd over my people, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And king, um, and, sorry, and king David and made a covenant with them, I'm sorry, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And this is the word of the Lord. You may sit. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning aware of our need that we have for you, Lord. Father, we come to your word knowing that our hearts um, rebel against your word. And so, Father, we pray this morning, would you, pe- would you please speak to us through your revealed word. I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts that are humble to hear your word and submit to it. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there is anything that I say that does not align to the truth of Scripture, that it would fall down and be forgotten. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So this morning, the first thing I want us to see is that when sinners come to their senses, they bow before the King. You see, um, last week, uh, you may remember, we saw that since David was anointed King by the tribe of Judah, this is seven years prior to what's happening right now, Uh, Since that day, when he was anointed by the tribe of Judah, there has been a lot of bloodshed. There's been betrayal among the people of Israel. It's been really messy. Well, now, seven years later, the other 11 tribes of Israel come before David in Hebron to anoint him as their king. You see, after all these years of civil war, the elders of the tribes of Israel finally come to their senses. They realize that their lives, that living their lives in opposition to God and to the God-appointed king will only lead them to death and destruction. And so they bow before David. Now, I think the main thing that the author wants us to see in this is the fact that God is, once again, and I know I'm sounding repetitive, I am aware of that, but I need, we need to hear this, is the fact that God is sovereign over all things. That God's will is inexorable. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. What God decrees will happen, no matter whether we refuse to follow it or not. Whether we accept it or not, God's will will always happen. 
Now we see the, the, the elders of the tribes of Israel come before David. Now, the last time we heard of these guys, the last time we saw the elders, all the elders of the tribes of Israel coming together, it was back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And you may remember that, that, that at that time, when they came together, they came to Samuel to request from God a king like all the other nations. That's the last time we saw them all come together. Now you may remember that only five chapters later, God makes it clear that he has rejected Saul, who was the, given, who was the king he had given them, like the other nations. They wanted that king, and only five chapters later, God rejects Saul because Saul had chosen to do his own will instead of following God. Then in 1 Samuel 16, you may remember that when David was only a king in the little town of Bethlehem, God anointed him king. In the secret, in a small place, in a small town in the middle of nowhere, God had appointed King uh, David to be king of Israel. It took them decades. It took decades for this to actually happen, to get to the point where we are today. Years of civil war, years of betrayal, years of death, to finally come to the census, to their senses, and finally realize that their plan was bad. It took these people... Um, long enough to finally submit to God's appointed king. You see, God did what he had promised, and he did it for the sake of his love for the people of Israel, in spite of their unfaithfulness. He always remained faithful. Amen. Now let us marvel at the fact that our God is patient. Have you ever thought about the fact that God does not have to be patient, and yet he chooses to be patient? Our God is patient. Our God is kind. He describes himself as slow to anger, as patient, and as abounding in, in steadfast love. Now, I don't know all of you, and I don't know where you stand today. Some of you may be followers of Christ, and some of you may not yet be followers of Christ. Well, let me ask you this morning, have you considered that maybe like the elders of the people of Israel, you have been living long enough without bowing to the king. Have you considered the fact that the path that you're in may be leading you to death and disappointment? Just like with the elders of Israel, God is being patient with you. Keep in mind, though, that Paul warns us not to presume on the kindness of God and his patience because they are meant to lead us to repentance. So this, what we're reading today, the story of the elders of Israel, should be a wake-up call for us. For those of you that are not yet bowing before the king, for those of you who refuse and push back against the kingdom of God, this needs to be a wake-up call. Now, so we see here, the elders come to David with the intention of submitting to him as king. And as they do this, they list three reasons why they want to do this. Number, the first reason that they list is this. They tell David, basically, your family. Now, after all these years of persecuting him or fighting against him, of rebelling against him, they come to David and they say this. They say, behold, we are bone and flesh. Pretty convenient, isn't it? But you see, they appeal to David's blood relationship because they know that David knows, um, or that David, I'm sorry, sees them as his blood and his flesh and not his enemies. 
Despite their betrayal, despite their persecution, David sees them not as enemies, but as family members to be reconciled with. Did you know that when we come to Christ, we come to him not as strangers, not as foreigners, or even as enemies. We come to him as we do to a brother. I mean, you saying, Christian, where in the world are you getting that from? Well, for the Bible. <laughs> Hebrews 2.11 uh, 2, tells us that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And later in verse 17, we read this. It says this. It says, there, uh, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, his brothers being you and I, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Amen. Did you hear that? Christ became like you and me in every respect, precisely so that he could be merciful and faithful as a high priest. He did this so that he could stand between you and God, between you, the enemy of God, and a holy God, and he could reconcile us. Church, Jesus Christ is a king. But he is not a distant historical figure. He is not part of mythology. He is the king of the universe. And at the same time, he, if you are in Christ, is your brother. Yes. He sees us as family. We are family of the king, with the king of the universe. And that should blow our minds. The second reason that the elders of Israel list before David... And to appeal to him is this. He said, they see him now, finally, as the true Savior. In verse 2, they said this. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. You see, the second reason they give David that they finally recognize he has been, uh, is that they finally recognize he has been the true Savior all along. They recognize that although they had put their trust in Saul, that they had given their allegiance to Saul, Time and again, it had been David who had actually been able to deliver them. In the same way, when we come to Christ, we can only do so when we realize that He is our only hope for salvation. We can only draw near to Christ whenever we realize He is the one hope, not one among many. You see, when it comes to Christ, we cannot hedge our bets. When it comes to our salvation, we cannot... Just put our eggs in different baskets. We don't come to Jesus just in, ha- in case he happens to be God. But we come to Jesus when we realize that he is our only hope for life and salvation. We can only truly come to Jesus when, for salvation when we forsake all other hope and trust in him alone as our Savior and as our Deliverer. The third reason the elders of Israel give David as they draw near to him is that he is their God-appointed shepherd and prince. They said to him, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. You see, the last reason that they're listing should have actually been the first reason and only reason for them to draw near to him. And that is the fact that it was God who had appointed him king over Israel. All through the story of David, we see David referring to himself as a shepherd. You see, David saw himself as a shepherd appointed by God to care for his people. In the same way, 
Christ is the true and better shepherd. Christ is our shepherd, a shepherd that knows his sheep by name, a shepherd that knows our needs and knows what is best for us. He is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go for the one lost one. Church, do you see this? King Jesus wants to be your shepherd and your prince. He is your deliverer. He is your older brother. He wants you to be he wants to be your God and he wants you to be his. Now, if you do come to him, when you do come to him, don't come to him wondering if you're good enough. Reality is that you're not. Not one of us is. You know, we often approach God shyly as we would approach a distant, powerful monarch wondering if we are inconveniencing him. We think, we, we think that we need to get our act together and make ourselves presentable when in reality he is awaiting us with open arms. You see, Christ delights in giving grace. Yeah. If you're here this morning wondering, should I come to him? Am I good enough? Well, let me ask, answer this. No, you're not. But not one of us was. Not one of us is. And yet, he wants you to be his. He is awaiting you with open arms, and he will delight to give you grace if you call upon his name. Now, as we continue, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to read verses 6 through 10, and then we're going to jump to verses 17 to 25. You'll notice that we're skipping a portion, but at the end we'll come back to that portion that we'll be skipping. And there's a reason why we're doing that. The second point this morning that I want to make is this, that our king defeats his enemies. In order to see this, I want us to see verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 says this, It says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the mellow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. All right, this is an odd passage to read if we're on, as you might be thinking, well, David is clearly an ableist. He hates disabled people because he hates um, the blind and the lame. That is not what this passage is saying, so let us talk about what it is saying. First, I want us to see um, the, the, the feet of the Jebusites. And we'll talk about the blind and the lame in just a second. We want us to see that the first thing that David does as the appoint, anointed king is to go and fight the Jebusites in Jerusalem. Now, how many of you guys know who the Jebusites were? Not many of us know who the Jebusites are. As a matter of fact, we haven't heard about the Jebusites in Scripture for a long time. But in the book of Joshua, God had commanded his people to conquer the promised land and to defeat a bunch of nations that stood against them. The Jebusites were one of those nations. The Jebusites were of those nations that opposed God. They were the enemies of God. And David then goes and he immediately does what God wants him to do. You see, 
Israel hadn't been able to conquer or defeat the Jebusites for hundreds of years. And yet, no matter how difficult it appeared, David acted in obedience to what God had called him to do, and he got to work. Zion will, from this point on, become central to the story of God's people. Zion was a stronghold in Jerusalem, and it was a remarkably difficult place to conquer because it was at the top of a hill. So the Jebusites were so confident that David couldn't conquer them that that's why they say this. They said, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. You see, they are, uh, this is a burn towards David. They're like, you know what? You can't come in here. As a matter of fact, even if you try, our blind and our lame will, will fight you off. That's how confident they were on, who, on where they stood. As a matter of fact, I mean, if we're honest, like that's a pretty lame uh, burn to use against David. But they were so confident that David couldn't conquer them that they said, you know, our blind, our lame, the weakest of us can stop you. So what does David do? He tells his army to go up the water shaft, which was a huge vertical tunnel-like structure that was the main source of water for the stronghold of Zion. I believe we have a picture of it. You can still go and visit the water shaft today. It is now called Warren's Shaft. Apparently some dude found it and gave it his name, which we'll see is a pretty common thing. Um, but the reality is that uh, what, what David did is he obeyed the Lord. He told his army, go up that water shaft, and they actually were able to conquer Zion. They were able to defeat the enemies of God. Now, after conquering Zion, very humbly named it the city of David. And this city, <laughs> Jerusalem, was... See, I'm telling you, guys giving their own name to places. It's weird, but it's a thing. Um, and this city, Jerusalem, would be as we all know, a very important place in the plan of God for his people. And really, it's, a huge, uh, it's of huge importance in all of human history. Now the question is, did David conquer this impenetrable fortress because of his military ability? Did he conquer them because he was a master tactician? Well, not really. David himself will tell you. The passage here tells us, the author actually tells us, and David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, Amen. was with him. Do you see this? That David became greater and greater, not because he was a great guy. Right. Not because he had it all figured out, but because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. David was only able to defeat the enemies of God because God was with him. Right. Which leads us to the second defeat of God's enemies that I want us to see today. And this is the defeat of the Philistines. In order to do this, we need to look at verse 17 and on. Verse 17 says this. It says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them um, the opposite. Uh, 
and come against them opposite the uh, balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in tops uh, of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Giva to Gezer. And that's the word of the Lord. In this instance, we see David once again fighting the enemies of God, putting to death that which God hated. We see David going up against the Philistines. You may remember that prior to Saul's death, David had deceived the Philistines and he had been hanging out with them for a little bit. And now the Philistines turn around and David is the king of the people they hate. So the Philistines are ticked and they go looking for David. You may remember that the Philistines have been the main enemy of the people of Israel for the entirety of the books of Samuel. The Philistines have been a stench for the Israelites. You may remember, too, that at the beginning of the book of Samuel, when God uh, had commanded Saul, when, he was an, when Saul was anointed king, God had, com- God had commanded him to go and defeat the Philistines, to take care of them. But time and time again, uh, Saul had failed to do so. Now David, as a king, is finally going to take care of the enemies of God. But notice, that what, he do- notice what he does before going into the, into the battlefield. He seeks the Lord for guidance. And then what's even more important is verse 25 that says, And he did as the Lord commanded. Now, the first time he tells, the Lord tells him to go up and fight, and they defeat the enemies. To the point that they left their idols. It was a decisive victory. Then, a little while later, the Philistines get organized again. And again, David seeks the Lord for guidance. But this time, the Lord tells David not to go up, but to go from behind. This time, God also told David his army would hear the sound of marching tops and the tops of the trees. Um, the, sorry, the, the sound of marching and the tops of the trees. This was a sign given by God to David and his people to remind them that it was God himself that was going before them into battle. It was God himself that was fighting their battles. Once again, the point of this story is for us to see how God is sovereign over all things. There is nothing or anyone that can thwart his plans and his purposes. But also, there are a couple things that we can glean from David's victory over God's enemies. And here they are. The first one is this, that as children of God, we are called to put to death that which God hates. Unlike David, you and I are not called to go fight armies, but we are called to put to, death and, uh, to put to death the sin in our flesh today. Unlike Saul, David was not passive in fighting the enemies of God. We too need to be active in the mortifying of our flesh and the putting to death our sin. Colossians 3 verses 5 through 8 say this, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This church is what John Owen calls the mortification of sin. In his famous book, John Owen says this, he says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. While you live, cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Church, 
This is our call for us as believers to walk in holiness, to put to death that which God hates. Paul gives us a list. I don't have to give you a list because you know exactly what it is in your life that the Lord hates that you are not yet putting to death. Or you know that thing that you have been trying to be putting to death for years and are still struggling to do so. But church, let us be aggressive and intentional in putting our sin to death. The second thing that we can glean from this is this. That as children of God, we have not been left to our own devices. Notice again the contrast between Saul and David. Saul did, did things the way he saw fit. He overestimated his ability. He thought he was clever enough to do things on his own. He thought he could do things his own way and failed miserably. David, on the other hand, sought God's guidance in his battle against God's enemies. In the same way, in our daily battles, we too need to turn to God in humility, knowing that we are weak and that on our own we are incapable to put sin to death. One of the great things about the gospel is that it does not just tell you what to do, but in Christ, it also enables you to do it. We have been given all things we need for life and godliness. Church, it is our responsibility to put sin to death, and we do not have to do it on our own. This leads me to point number three. As children of God, we do not fight our battles alone. Paul in Philippians 2 Verses 12 and 13 says this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want us to think about this for a moment, church. God calls you to put sin to death, but then Paul is telling us that it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. It is the Holy Spirit who enables you to point, I mean, to, to, to put to death the sin in your life. I know this is not a one-time process, but it is a daily fight. But we, as the children of God, can rest assured that God is with us fighting our battles. You see, David didn't fight, uh, didn't defeat the Debussite the Jebusites, I'm sorry, and the Philistines because he was powerful. He didn't defeat them because he was clever. He defeated them because in his weakness, he relied on God. In the same way, we do not defeat our sin on our own strength or by our clever scheming. We do so with the help of the Lord of hosts. So as we put our sin to death, we know that we're not doing it alone. The God that went before David to defeat his enemies goes before us in our battle against sin. God is the one working in us. And by his grace, he will empower us in our moments of weakness. And I know you might be thinking, Christian, you have no idea how weak I am. I am incapable, incapable of fighting sin. But I will tell you a couple things. First of all, I think I know. I think I know. Because I failed over and over again. Because I am weak. But I would also tell you, praise the Lord, that you know how weak you are. Because it is only in your weakness that his power is made perfect. And let me, I want you to hear this. You do not have to, sin, to fight sin alone. 
Christ has already defeated sin on your behalf, and he continues to sanctify you and to enable you daily to walk in holiness. You do not have to fight sin alone. Look around you. You're surrounded by other sinners that are in the same battle of putting our sin to death, and we want to walk with you. No matter how long you've been struggling with this sin, no matter how big and scary your sin you think may be, we want to walk with you. But more than that, God is the one that fights your battles. No matter how big or bad your sin may be, God's grace is bigger. And He wants you for Himself. So let us not forget this, that we are not fighting alone. Now before we close, remember how we skipped a portion earlier? How um, we, we skipped through a few verses? Well, I want to read these verses now. I want us to jump back, verse 11, and, and verses 11 and 12. I want us to see the kings bow before the anointed, the anointed king of Israel. Verse 11 says this, and just to give you a little bit of context, because you know we did some jumping around. Um, this is after... Uh, after David uh, defeats the, the Jebusites, this is what the author tells us. He tells us in verse 11, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You see, after David is anointed king, and after he defeats the Jebusites, we see this guy, Hiram, the king of Tyre, which... We don't really truly know who that is, right? <laughs> um, but you see, uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, he was the king of a little place that was a, uh, called Tyre that was a trading center. And this man comes to David with gifts. He comes to David uh, and he tells him he wants to give him what he needs, cedar, wood, and even masons to build uh, a house for David. Masons and carpenters. Um, and though... I want to just clarify something here. This, according to other writings, uh, may have happened actually later in the life of David. But the reason the author puts it here is because uh, he wants to show us how the Lord has blessed David and the kingdom of Israel. You see, Tyre, like I said, was a trading center, and its king may have given these gifts in order to garner some favor with David because you know, giving these gifts to David was probably good for business for him. But David didn't just see this as good, as good uh, business. David saw this gift as the evidence that God had exalted him among the nations. In the same way, you see, Jesus, the true and better king, is exalted among the nations. Paul again tells us in, in, in Philippians again, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he says this. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed, him, uh, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, our King, Jesus, is exalted above all things. He's exalted above the nations. He is a good and perfect King. This far, David has been what we call a type of Christ. He has been a shadow, an image, pointing to something greater than himself. 
He is now the king of Israel. He is God, cho- God's chosen man, who after much suffering is exalted. Everything is working out well for David, and things are about to, uh, they're about to improve for Israel. And yet, in the middle of all the good news that are coming, we find verse 13. And we are reminded that David was only a shadow or a glimpse for the true and better king, Jesus Christ. Because you see, in verses 12, uh, 13 to 16, we will see that uh, the king Jesus is the only perfect and eternal king. Every other king will disappoint us. Every other king uh, will leave us hanging. But Jesus is perfect and eternal. Verse 13 says this, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he had come from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephag, uh, Japhiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. And if you can do a better job than that, uh, you know what? You can read it next time. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I completely messed up all those names, by the way, but you wouldn't know that. Anyways, everything was going so well for David. Everything was going well. Finally, everything was back in track for the kingdom of Israel. And then we get to this portion where we see David taking again more wives. Now, as we think David is perfect, the Bible reminds us of his weakness. Even though this may have been common practice for kings at the time, the Bible, the Word of God, the law of God specifically forbids it. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says this. It says, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You may remember a few weeks back, Tim mentioned how David had the problem of taking women for himself. We saw that with Abigail, the wife of Nabal. And in only about five chapters, we will see how he does this yet again with Bathsheba. And this will carry terrible consequences, not only for David, but for those around him. And we've said this several times in the, you know, while we've been covering First and Second Samuel. But contrary to, some, to what some people say, the Old Testament does not condone polygamy. Every time polygamy happens in Scripture, it leads to conflict and dysfunction. And as we will see in the next few weeks, this is not the exception. Now something I love and appreciate about the Bible is that it never whitewashes anyone. It doesn't shy away from calling out the sin, even of the most influential characters in the story of God. As you all know, Queen Elizabeth passed away last week. Her death was a great reminder that no king or queen is eternal. No matter what you think of her or the royals in general, Queen Elizabeth was always there. She was always there. I don't think any one of us remembers this world without Queen Elizabeth. So her death was a reminder of our smallness and of how limited our life is. Then, since her death, King Charles III has been in the news as well. And he, too, has been a pretty good reminder of how fickle kings of earth are. You see, David, even though he was a man of God's own heart, he was still only a man. He, too, was weak. He, too, was fickle. He, too, was broken. And he, too, was bound to disappoint us. 
This story then is the reminder that only King Jesus is eternal and perfect. If our hope is set on anyone or anything else other than Christ, we are bound to be disappointed and to pay dearly for it. When Christ took a bride, and I love this. This is from Tim. I don't want to take credit for something I didn't write, but as Tim was going over my notes, he added this. He said, when Christ took a bride, he laid down his life for her. Just one bride for Christ. The church is her name. Do you see, this is the king that we serve. Not one that is self-serving. Not one that takes from us, but one that is kind and patient and loving. One that gave his life so that others would be saved. Church, as we close this morning, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come, I want to remind you that you will be tempted to set other kings over your own life, many of which will promise you happiness and joy, but will only lead to death and disappointment. King Jesus, on the other hand, is a king who, just like David, made a covenant with his people. His people who used to be his enemies, he makes a covenant with them. The prophet Jeremiah describes the covenant that Christ made with his, pe- with his people. And in the next few weeks, we will be talking about covenants, and I'm so excited, so please don't miss it. But Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34 are talking about the covenant that was to come by the greater and better king, that being Jesus. He says this, For this is the covenant that I will make for the, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, and listen to this part, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Are you a sinner? Are you ungodly? Are you a rebel? Are you an enemy of God? And to use the the, the words of scripture, are you today an object of God's wrath? Because you stand in rebellion against him. If this is you, run to him. The door is open. The Bible tells us that he will forgive your iniquity and he will remember your sins no more. Do you hear this? God wants to turn his enemies into his children. God delights in forgiving and in giving grace. If this is you, would you consider at the end of the service coming and talking to us? We here are not telling you these things because we think we're better. Not at all. We are here to tell you these things because we too were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We too were the enemies of God, the objects of His wrath. But we have tasted that the Lord is good. And we want you to taste it too. Would you pray with me this morning before we worship? Heavenly Father, we bow down before the King of the universe this morning. Father, we thank you because you are not only a powerful, mighty King, but you are a good, benevolent, patient King. We thank you, Father, because when we were your enemies, you made a covenant with us. You accepted it into your people, and you gave us protection and love and peace and joy that the world can only promise but never deliver. We pray this morning, Lord, 
would you give us humble hearts? Father, I pray for those of you who are here who do not yet know you. Even for those who think they know you but don't, I pray for them that today would be the day where they bow before the King and there find freedom. Father, we thank you for your word. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, let us worship our King. Thank you.